Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and in 2011, Potter Gotuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast, and we're still there every month. 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life, and we love it. 10 by 9 is also a small social enterprise, and we offer workshops and events to festivals, conferences, and to private companies, because everybody has a story. There's more info on our website, 10by9.com. This week, we have three stories for you, as well as a mini-story from Australia. But first, all the way from Derry, here's Andy Warmington. It was recorded on December the 4th in Sandinos, and the theme was school. They would regret letting the children write the school play that year until the end of their careers, maybe longer. The previous year, we had treated the parents and relatives in the audience to a production of The Times Tables, set to an interminable soundtrack and interpretive dance. Even now, when multiplying by 11, I hear the muttered dismay of a tested audience. Oh no, Jesus, please, they're going all the way up to 12 times. That year, the teachers asked us early in the first term, when the leaves lay golden brown on the playground gravel, what would you like to do for this year's school play? Something fun, something you could all get involved in and really tell a story. A girl whose name I forget, who claimed to be able to read an entire Roald Dahl book in one day and was an awful wee teacher's pet, asked if we could write and produce it ourselves. The true voice of the pupils, she called it. I can still see now the mental calculation the teacher made in her head, the sort of Faustian bargain we all make at some point in the adult workplace. How can I balance the absolute theatrical car crash this is sure to become with the fact I won't have to do any work and I can impress the PTA committee no end with my willingness to engage young minds in free expression? We formed a central writing committee to brainstorm only three of us wanted to do the actual work. Me, the Roald Dahl fan club, and another girl called Trisha, who'd been told by a mother she was terrified of to get out and volunteer for something this year. The rest of the class saw the opportunity to sit back, let others do the work, and still accept the plaudits. Most of that cohort now earn large corporate salaries and drive two or more cars. We discussed writing themes that were as wide-ranging in narrative and existential form as we could muster for nine-year-olds. We settled on three core ideas that were important to us. Friendship, the presumably imminent advent of time travel, and crisps. <laughs> we sat back in our miniature chairs, three expansive grins of accomplishment. This thing was going to write itself. There were some unexpected hurdles. Script writing, it turned out, required the loan of what might have been the first Apple computer on the island and the technical assistance of a man whose name I do not know, but I will dub for illustrative purposes, Lurch. He was a six-foot beanpole of freckles and frustration and body odour. I realise now he can't have been older than 20. He initiated the power-up system for the computer module and seemed to be in an even worse mood when it actually worked. Type, he said, pointing to a cluster of keys. No type, he may also have said, pointing to the rest. So we typed. This was the day I learnt that typing is not a three-child job. In fact, the appliance of three children to basically any task will create the conditions for significant delay. I've typed solo ever since and been all the more productive for it. 
Eventually, we had our pages, and the teacher helped us to save the file onto a flat, square, floppy disk, which she took to Lurch, who returned with ten hard copies, one between two, thumbprinted with his evident rage. Trisha, the Roldal consumption machine, and I held our copies with gratified pride. Publication. Validation. I've learned since that a good rule of thumb for playwrights is that the text on one page roughly equates to one minute of theatre. The expectation was that an average school production would last, balancing the need for substance with a spirit of mercy, 25 to 30 minutes. Our script, and I remember this very clearly as I assessed our masterpiece, fell some inches short of three pages. <laughs> Without realising it, we had created a directorial challenge well beyond the capabilities of three complete novices, not yet double figures in age. Gloriously ignorant of any such concerns, we threw ourselves headlong into rehearsals, like a trio of tiny Samuel Becketts, poised to imply our way out of anything. We moved on to another critical pre-production phase, casting. Starring roles were coveted and awarded with shameful nepotism to the three playwrights. But we would need a supporting cast to give the production the intended scale. Casting was rigorous, or at least it began that way. When the teacher reminded us that everybody in the class must be given a role regardless of their acting ability or whatever it said in the script, we relaxed our selection criteria a little. Rehearsals were a riot of creative exploration and expression, which looking back might be better described as all-out chaos. When we had to lose a page and a half of the script to facilitate the limited stage size and practical issues with installing lasers, the entire project was in jeopardy. In the end, we pieced together a 20-minute performance with all the signs of a beginning and an end, trapping a middle between them against its will. There was also the late addition of a big new musical number. The best we could do without adequate time for composition was we're traveling through time to the tune of we're singing in the rain. The conceit of the story was simple and familiar. We only escaped a charge of plagiarism on account of the fact primary school children haven't been alive long enough to know that somebody has already had all their ideas. A trio of happy kids are playing in the park an inciting incident which taught me how to mime being on a seesaw when they remember their history homework is due the next morning. A page of expositional dialogue reveals that a tube of Pringles, which were the coolest crisps at the time and might still be now, can be used to time travel while singing the appropriate song, also partly plagiarised. Our heroes encounter Cleopatra, Elvis Presley, Alexander Graham Bell and more. This section was made all the more confusing for the audience and some of the cast as the trio of playwrights took roles both as the time-travelling children and the figures from history. <laughs> this developed an impressive talent for swift costume change, a skill I won't demonstrate now, but certainly could under different circumstances. <laughs> the finale, where we made the largest concession to casting demands, was needlessly complex and could be said to have disappeared up its own Pringles tube. <laughs> we, muddled, <laughs> we muddled through uh, to the end to receive a warm, relieved, and baffled round of applause. As an adult, this performance occasionally pops up in uncomfortable anxiety dreams. <laughs> but back then, we were fearless. We made a thing. We tested ourselves. 
We tested our parents beyond reasonable conditions as we took our third curtain call. There was a modest wrap party with Ribena and custard creams, and that was it for our time travel Pringles tube adventure play. It did not have a lengthy run. It was not picked up by the West End or even off-Broadway. The tabloid reviews were brief to the point of invisibility, and the headmistress thanked us for our contribution in that patronising voice adults don't think children can pick up on. <laughs> Occasionally, when I'm in the town where I grew up, I'll walk past a face I dimly recognise as an ageing teacher or a gr grown-up classmate. I'm never sure, but they often seem to whisper or mutter something to themselves or whoever they're with. It sounds a bit like they're saying, Pringles. <laughs> Andy, that reminded me, when I was in primary school, I was supposed to be in the Derry pantomime, and it was Babes in the Wood, and I was going to be one of the babes, one of, a big role, but then, it being a pantomime, they decided they wanted two girls to play the boy and the girl. So I was dumped, and as a consolation, I got to play one of the seven dwarfs. <laughs> and you'll never guess which one I was. <laughs> I was grumpy. Me? Anyway, that was my last brush with fame. Showbiz is cruel. Thanks so much, Andy. Hot Tub Time Machine ripped you off, by the way. And that was Andy's first time at the 10 by 9 mic. And we love first-timers and do as much as we can to help. So if you want to tell your story, go to the website where you'll find everything you need to know. Next up, he's a black box regular. And here he is with a story recorded in September when the theme was peace. Take it away, Bob Salisbury. He knew it was serious the moment it happened. The knife had sliced through the tough outer glove, through the wooden mitt, and cut deep into the palm. Blood gushed up through the fabric immediately and spilled down onto the deck and the mass of wriggling fish around his feet. Ruski clenched his fist tightly to try and staunch the flow and shouted to the other deckhands for help. The cook was already running with antiseptic pads and absorbent towels. He'd been on the bridge at the time and felt the ship shudder as the bow dropped into the trough and met the raw power of the oncoming wall of water. He'd seen the accident happen. The ship's forward momentum had stopped for a moment and Rusk had been caught off balance as his waders slithered on the wet deck. The razor-sharp knife honed expertly every half an hour cut through the protective gloves and hand as easily as it opened the tough skins of the cod and the haddock. The cook ripped off what was left of the gloves and applied an absorbent pad. Ruski's hand was open from the base of the thumb to the little finger and first glance told us that this was something... Okay. I can't read my thing now. <laughs> um, no, it's all right. Um, first glance uh, showed us this was something our basic first aid training couldn't handle. This wound needed professional help. This was a hospital job. It was 1961 and I was aboard SS Vivaria, a trawler out of Grimsby, as a decky learner. After nearly two weeks of fishing for cotton haddock off Bear Island in the Arctic waters, the skipper had brought us south to the rich fishing grounds of the White Sea. 
This area, just outside Russian territorial limits, held huge numbers of place, which always fetched a good price at the docks. Trawling was hard work. 18 hours off, six off. 18 hours on, six off. But cruising to the fishing grounds took four days. And this gave us all time to sit and talk. Shoulder to shoulder would be crammed into the tiny galley and the humour and the conversation would flow. That's how John became Ruski. John was not just a xenophobe, it was wider than that. He hated difference and would mistrust anyone who had a lifestyle or culture he could not recognise. Anyone who spoke with a different accent, indeed anyone who was not from his part of Grimsby. <laughs> the greater the distance from his street, the greater the suspicion he showed. It was an uh, equation that he used rigorously. He saved his greatest venom for the Russians, which he pronounced Russians, and almost every conversation would eventually finish up with a tirade from him about what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. For entertainment, we used to wind him up about his favourite subject. What do you think's the best taste from the sea, I would ask? Our thick halibut steak takes some beating. Cod with beer batter for me. John Dory, it's an ugly brute, but sweet. Then the man sitting next to John will put a fly on the water. Scallops be my favourite. Fried for a second on each side. Bit of brown bread and butter. Perfect. John would take the bait like a hungry trout. Scallops, you can't eat them up here. Live in the silt at the bottom. All radioactive from what the Ruskies have been tipping into the sea from their nuclear bases. No one knows what muck their submarines chuck out either. Seabed will be polluted for years. Off he'd go, reeling negative facts and figures about Russia, which always sounded convincing but which were difficult to challenge or verify. On, the, on this occasion, he was right, of course. Large quantities of scallops regularly came on board along with the fish, but despite their value in earlier years, pollution had made them inedible, and we used to just kick them back into the sea. In full flow, it was Ruski's this or Ruski's that, and eventually the nickname stuck. The skipper was already on the radio to the nearest naval ship. Though they gave useful advice about the injured hand, they were three days sailing away and the wound clearly needed more urgent attention. Uh, suggest you chance it and put into one of the white seaports. This suggestion didn't go down well. It was the time of the Cold War and Russian fighter planes on exercise often buzzed the trawlers as part of their training what the reaction might be to a foreign ship sailing into their territorial waters without permission, no one knew. I've no charts for those waters. You don't have much choice. That hand needs work. Russian Navy will soon pick you up on their radar and come out to take a look. Sorry we can't be of more help. Good luck. The trawl net was winched aboard, otterboards and weights secured, and we headed in towards the Russian coast. Blood still seeped through the dressing on the injured hand, and Ruski had gone very pale. Why are we heading this way, Skipper? Navy's too far away. We'll put into one of the Russian ports. They'll get you sorted. 
Ruski seemed to shrink further on hearing this. The Soviet patrol boat came up fast and soon the whine of her twin engines and the rhythmic slapping of her hull on the waves could be heard as she approached. In a dangerous but showy maneuver, she cut across the bows of our ship, curved round leaving a huge wake and then reduced speed to come alongside. The hammer and the sickle at her stern showed her lineage. Two officers looked out from the bridge and the, sailors, the other sailors manned the armaments. She was graceful but threatening as she lolled in the surf. One of the officers came on deck and began to shout through a loud hailer. His words were unintelligible. Talk to him, Bob, talk to him, Bob, the skipper said, handing me a loud hailer. You speak languages, don't you? French and German, no Russian. Try him anyway. For five minutes or so, we shouted at one another across the green divide. The wind instantly took away the words, and even with a common language, any chance of understanding was remote. The second officer, looking through binoculars, seemed to notice Ruski's bandaged hand. He gave a command, and the patrol boat moved forward. What did he say? What did he say? The skipper asked, without his usual authority and certainty. Uh, follow him, I said, with fingers crossed. <laughs> we headed inshore in line astern and were soon at the mouth of the estuary where we threaded our way through sandbars and mudflats. A concrete key came up and the Russian indicated we should dock beyond a row of dilapidated naval vessels. Bored-looking soldiers stood by and Ruski's face turned even more ashen as he spotted them. A military vehicle with no markings waited. The back doors were flung open and a uniformed nurse descended. Hey, watch out for those Russian women, Ruski. I heard they can rip the arms off a bear when they get passionate. <laughs> it fell on stony ground as he was helped into the vehicle. For several hours, nothing happened. The dock was little different from thousands of others dotted around the world. Rusty ships, discarded mechanical litter, a skyline of oil, orage, oil storage tanks, and buildings dating from more prosperous times. I decided I would set foot on Russian soil and jumped up onto the side of the ship, pointed to the quay and looked to the nearest soldier. He just smiled and shook his head. When the ambulance finally returned, Ruski's arm was in a sling and his injured hand had been splayed in a frame and expertly bandaged. He looked relaxed and cheerful and shouted a greeting to us. All sorted, he said. No problem. The patrol boat skipper indicated that we should follow him out into the estuary. Soon his vessel turned about, gave a short blast on her siren, the engines opened up and she surged forward and was gone. They were nice people, said Ruski as he sipped his tea. Really nice people. Doctors, nurses, everyone couldn't do enough for me. Not dreaded commies then? No. Nice people. All nice people. Ordinary people like us.
Thanks, Bob. Let's head to Australia now and to Adelaide, where 10 by 9 has been running very successfully under the eye of Danny Madsen and Mel Lambert. Here's a mini-story from Rose Alemani, recorded in November when the theme was OMG. Um, so I'm going to be telling a two-minute story about, number one, there's a lot of surprises um, that have come over me that day. So it all starts in a health lesson at the end of the day, and we were doing a trust circle. So it started off with me, and then our friends and family. So it started off with family. And there's this other girl in my class called Caitlin, and she was bragging because you could do pets. And she said, oh, I have 22 things on my list, and look at you, you have one. Well, yeah, it's because my dad was in another country, and my grandma, I don't know. Um, so she kept on bragging, and that made me really upset. So I was walking home that day, and I saw this gate open. I didn't know why it was open, but then I saw some people just come inside. And then I saw this big, furry, black dog. And I had no idea what to do. So I just ran, the dog chased me, I got scared, I started crying. So um, the dog went over, started barking like crazy. I got really scared again, started crying, went past, tried not to look at it, and I went home. I was still crying, thinking, oh my gosh, Caitlin's a brat. I am scared of the dog. Caitlin is a brat. I am scared of the dog. Caitlin is a brat. <laughs> so I come home. I start laughing. Well, not laughing, crying. And then my mum opens the door. I'm crying, burst into tears. What's wrong? What's wrong? I, this is what happened. Caitlin's a brat. I got chased by a dog. What? You got chased by a dog? Aren't you friends with dogs? Well, yeah, sometimes. I go up to the couch because she says, I have a surprise for you. I go up, she sits down. What is it? I don't know. She sits me down on the couch. Are we moving? No, we're not, sadly. So I sit down, I sit down. She says, I have a good surprise for you. Okay, I have a sad story. She sits down, she opens up the computer then she goes onto this website. I don't understand what website she's on, but all I know is that it says Flight Center. She scrolls down, then I realize it's two tickets, Rosal Namani, Alex McGee, to go to my dad's country. And so I thought, I just burst into tears, and I said, I thought it was a toothbrush. You always give me toothbrushes. <laughs> and also, this other time, I was with my friend at our house, and she said, I have a surprise for you. I closed my eyes, put my hands out. It's a hairbrush. A hairbrush. <laughs> so, that's OMG, and we have four weeks to go. The fact that I thought it was a toothbrush is a bit sad. Um, but we have four weeks to go until we go there, and the go big OMG is that he doesn't know we're going. Thanks so much, Rose. The power of story right across the globe. Now, if you like what we do and would like to help us keep on doing it, we have a Patreon account. 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have overheads, so we're grateful if you want to help out. And if you enjoy the podcast, spread the word, and if you can, give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. You know what to do. Our final story for this podcast comes from another regular at the 10 by 9 mic. It's the wonderful Helen McClements. And there's probably an F-bomb or two. This looks nice, doesn't it? I said. 
showing my boyfriend an article in the Guardian Travel Supplement. It described a delightful and unexpected find in the Portuguese countryside, and the photo showed a rustic house bathed in the early evening sun. It had a natural eco-pool and meals were served in a shady courtyard. You could stroll in a cork forest by day before relaxing on the terrace of the spacious rooms. There would be no children, and as a teacher, this was very important to me, and no hordes of gay Adonises to make my partner feel shite. <laughs> I'll explain. The year before, I'd been in Madrid all summer and suggested that my boyfriend meet me for a beach holiday up in Barcelona. We'd come to Sitges, a resort where all the gays in Europe chose to congregate. My boyfriend was so white, he was almost blue. <laughs> he had been working on Wall Street during the financial crash of 2008, so long days were followed by even longer nights drinking in a pub called the Killarney Rose. Here comes a salad dodger, the waiter used to say when he came in of an evening and ordered his burger, stipulating meat and a bap and nothing else. <laughs> he was therefore very self-conscious on the beach, surrounded by buff, bronzed men with six packs and very small speedos. I, on the other hand, cook quite well. <laughs> we therefore had to compromise. I needed sunshine, a warm pool and access to pina coladas, preferably on tap. But he didn't know what to do on a beach holiday. His only concession to the 40 degree temperatures in Spain was to pack three short sleeve shirts. The previous year he'd arrived in jeans and trainers with socks on. He didn't bring sunglasses because he didn't own any. He seemed content to fry the corneas off himself. He had neither shorts nor flip-flops. Sun cream baffled him. He did take off his shoes but forgot to apply sunscreen to his feet and the exposed skin turned beetroot. It was sore when the trainer rubbed against it, he conceded later, and I didn't offer much sympathy. So we agreed on sunshine but no beach, and we booked two nights in Lisbon first to temper our retreat with some bustling city life. It sounded like the perfect, well-planned getaway. And then we got there. As we stepped off the bus in the main square, we were accosted by two men. Coke, grass, acid, they said. <laughs> Very good price. Looking back, our first mistake was not to take all the drugs. <laughs> they would have made our first night infinitely more bearable. A crotchety receptionist directed us to our room in the deepest entrails of a shabby hotel. The lift was broken and we huffed and puffed, bumping our cases up the stairs. I still think about the bed, which took up nearly all the room. If there was a ten by nine for beds, this bed could tell stories all right. <laughs> the springs threatened to break free and lacerate us as we slept. We rammed our case underneath, firstly, as there was nowhere else to put it, and secondly, to lend the mattress extra support. <laughs> you needn't think there'll be any, I started to say, but himself interrupted. And that, he said, I wasn't going to suggest it. I don't have a death wish. <laughs> the bathroom was built into the sloping roof, like a cupboard with a toilet. Even at five feet one, I had to duck my head to get in. I turned on the fan and it wheezed into, a motion, into motion with a cloud of dead mosquitoes which fell onto the bed, 
Fuck me! I shouted. I thought we said that was off the menu, said my boyfriend. This is not even funny, I fumed. No, said the receptionist when I went to complain. There are no other rooms. Even a meal of steak and fine wine couldn't dispel our gloom that night. In the morning, such was my soreness that they gave us a new room with a balcony that smelt of lemon-scented verbena. But despite sauntering the cobbled streets and hopping on and off the tram to stop for tapas, I was still in puerile form. Beside our hotel was a bridal shop displaying garish dresses of lurid yellow hue, like something you would cough up after a chest infection. <laughs> I could just see you in that one, said himself, winking. I told him to piss away off. <laughs> and the next day we boarded a train for Evora, from where we would reach our eco-resort. The lady at the bus station looked bemused when we explained where we wished to go. Where? She said, there, there are no buses going there. You'll have to take a taxi. So we stayed the night in Evora, which was beautiful and atmospheric, but I managed to ruin the moment by trying the local delicacy, which was a bowlful of snails swimming in sticky garlic broth. Himself was unperturbed. Should we just stay here? He asked. I mean, I like this town. He liked how they served beer and tankards at the Bowie-themed bar we found. No, I said, I want to go to my retreat. So the next day, a kamikaze driver, taxi driver sped us through a desolate landscape with acres of barren, scrubby fields. You're, you're coming here, he said. Even in broken English, his tone still conveyed incredulity. When we rocked up in a cloud of dust, the staff looked at us in surprise. They didn't expect two young people. They looked embarrassed on our behalf that we were there. There was an honesty bar boasting one type of shit beer and thankfully gin. We couldn't get any lunch because the staff were hosting a conference for very earnest looking Portuguese people. Never mind, I said, let's go to the pool. The eco-friendly credentials meant that they eschewed adding chlorine and instead let the natural pond life feed and cleanse the water. <laughs> At worst, it looked like a sewer and at best an overgrown duck pond. I entered its brown, murky depths and felt the reeds tug at my ankles. My disappointment was acute. Shall we have a walk in the forest, suggested my boyfriend with a note of desperation creeping in. Off we trudged. The scorched earth was red and dusty. Cork trees are not famed for leafy foliage. It mirrored my mood, which was now apocalyptic. Then we got lost. We hadn't brought pebbles like Hansel and Gretel, and even my boyfriend's usually good sense of direction failed him. Is that a fence, I said? It was. It was a barbed wire fence, to be precise. But we'd been in this bastard forest two hours, and I'd had enough. <laughs> I was astride the fence when I heard barking and two angry mongrels bounded towards us, snarling. I jumped back into the forest, smartish, and didn't notice the gash in my hands until later. Dinner that night was a subdued affair. In the absence of a menu, they plonked down two bowls of tomato soup with fried eggs floating on the top. There is nothing that my boyfriend despises more than eggs, but he valiantly slurped up some of the soup around it and ate the bread. He was still, bless him, trying to rescue the moment. The courtyard's nice, isn't it? He said. I conceded that yes, I supposed it was romantic. It would be nice to get married, he went on. 
Not here, obviously, but, you know, somewhere like this, only, you know, better. <laughs> I said, and he looked very sadly down at his soup. We returned to Lisbon two days early, where it was hot and busy, and I was still pissed off. Then the day after, we came home when our cat ran out into the road and had to have her tail amputated. Well, this summer's been a blast, I said. <laughs> However, we were still talking and even managing to have the odd laugh. At the end of August, we went to look at a house that was for sale near where we lived. Then we went to St George's Market for a sausage sandwich. Here, I said, do you reckon if we're looking at buying a house together, we're going to get married one day? Yeah, totally, said Stevie. Shall we look at a few rings then, I said. I wasn't planning this, by the way. I was wearing my running shorts and trainers. Sure, he said. So we trotted into a jeweller's, and approximately 15 minutes later, I emerged wearing a very shiny diamond ring. Do you fancy Portugal for the honeymoon, he said. Why not, I said, just as long as it's with you. <laughs> ah, romance is alive and kicking. Brilliant as always, Helen. Thanks so much. Okay, that's it from the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois and we got that at Facebook Sounds. Big thanks to everyone who keeps 10 by 9 going, including all our wonderful live audiences and to you for listening. But the biggest thank you goes to Andy Warmington, Bob Salisbury, Rose Alamani and Helen McClemens. Next week, we'll have a special festive podcast, but for now, bye-bye.